Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation we had last week with Hannah McCarthy, who was in Ramallah covering the bloodiest start to a year since the occupation began and the protests taking place across Israel against the most far-right government in the history of that state. Please give it a listen. If you like what we do, if you find yourself getting something out of it, please give something back. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you. We have no ads. We have no sponsors. Uh, how you do that is you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's in the podcast you're listening to right now. And you get a ton of extra content for the couple of quid that you throw us every month, uh, including access to our patron exclusives. We had one this week where myself and Martin broke down what's been happening in terms of former government uh, members lobbying current government members. And there was a great conversation with Konstantin Gordiev about the Silicon Valley Bank and how its collapse may actually lead to that systemic contagion we're all afraid of. And coming up shortly, there are two other interviews you're not going to want to miss. Uh, one is with Theresa May's former advisor uh, on housing while, while she was in 10 Downing Street. So that's going to be really, really good. It'll be out for members shortly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for telling people and, and spreading the word. Again, we don't have an advertising budget. We rely completely on word of mouth from yourselves. Please click the link. Have a look around and join us for a month. That's all I'm asking. If you join us for a month, it helps us keep going for that extra month. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And listen, folks, we said we'd be back as quickly as we could with um, uh, some of the events that have taken place in Gaza, in West Bank, in Yemen, in Israel. Uh, and we've been covering it, as you know, for a number of years here. But our friend Hannah McCarthy, uh, the journalist Hannah McCarthy, has spent a week in those areas now. And uh, Hannah, you joined us on the line now. Hannah, how are you keeping? It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on, Tony. I'm good. I'm here in Ramallah uh, in the West Bank. Mm. Uh, I often say, I usually open these by saying, please stop going to dangerous areas, Hannah. And I, I want, won't change the habit of a lifetime. Please stop going to dangerous areas, Hannah. Anyway, before we get to that, can we take us back a few days ago to the scenes that you witnessed in Tel Aviv of the protests against what has been called, not just by one or two people, but by several media outlets and, and obviously members of the Palestinian community and members of the Israeli community, the most far-right government in the history of the Israeli state. Those protests that take place on the streets, you witnessed them. Can you give me a, a sense of the scale and what they're protesting about, Hannah? Uh, sure. So last Saturday, I was in Tel Aviv and at about kind of 7 p.m. Uh, on Saturday, people started gathering for the ninth week in a row um, in central Tel Aviv along the motorways to protest um, plans by the new Israeli government, uh, which is the most right-wing and extreme government that has ever been voted into power, um, has proposed. Um, these proposals kind of centre around reforms to the judiciary. So quick background is that Israel doesn't have a written constitution um, and they also don't have, you know, a Senate like we do in the in Ireland. And they've had a kind of relatively active judiciary that has kind of, you know, served as a certain check uh, on a very powerful government. Um, the government has proposed reforms that basically would allow it to overrule uh, any decision of the Supreme Court uh, with a simple majority. Um, so that's quite a radical departure from the existing system. Um, and obviously in this situation, um, 
there's you know there's kind of more secular Israelis. There are you know people who would feel strongly about LGBT rights and women's rights who are very uncomfortable about the idea of um, and is a kind of right wing. Um, you know, very like that has settlers within it. An ultra conservative, uh, ultra conservative, very religious government being able to kind of overrule, you know, you know, court orders on human rights, um, on, you know, um, on how they would kind of like, you know, provide a check on legislation of the Israeli government. Um, so this is kind of one of the first times we've seen these kind of protests where, uh, Israelis en masse have come out against the government and um, it's not it's not a left-wing movement. Um, you know, there was a kind of section of the protest on Saturday that did have Palestinian flags uh, that was, you know, kind of a mixture of kind of younger students who were kind of um, protesting against the occupation and some older activists who kind of, you know, long campaigned uh, for the end of the occupation in, in, in Palestine. But it is mostly a kind of centrist movement. There was kippahs, there's like a sea of Israeli flags. And, you know, people have said, you know, the Israeli flag is now a kind of anti-government symbol. Um, But I think it's also kind of a a sign that this is not a radical protest. This is a protest of people who kind of, you know, believe, you know, they want to kind of stay... It's a popular protest from what I can gather, as in like it's... It's it's absolutely a popular protest in the sense that there's huge support across um, Israeli society um, to kind of maintain, you know, what people would describe as Jewish democracy rather than just pure democracy in the sense that's what they're kind of protecting. And, you know, when I spoke to people, I kind of asked them, like, you know, look, these guys who are waving the Palestinian flags, what do you think of them? And honestly a lot of them they were like they kind of rolled their eyes they were like you know that's not really what this protest is about um when i was talking to one girl who was holding a palestinian flag a kind of guy came up to uh, to us and kind of was like shouting at her saying you know this isn't about this you know stop using this protest because i think they still don't link you know the march right um, and the extremist tactics that have been deployed by the government as kind of linked with you know the decades of occupation so and they and they would kind of say, look, we have to be really targeted. And, you know, what we're doing here is, you know, we're protecting women's rights, LGBT rights. Hey, you know. is it, but isn't it, is that not strange, Hannah? Because, of course, that's the genesis of the protest. Of course it is. Palestine is the genesis of the protest. There'd be no protest if you didn't have a right-wing government elected over Palestine, over the West Bank. I mean, they, that's why there's a right wing government. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's a bit disingenuous then to turn around and say, well, you know, they're right wing and we're concerned about their right wingness in these areas. But the very fact that they were elected because of Palestine, because of West Bank, that's why they're a right wing government. That seems terribly disingenuous, terribly. And I think from from my conversations with uh, with quite a few Israelis, it's a real... There's a real way that they compartmentalize their thinking on this. And a lot of them have never been to the West Bank, I should just add. They just have no real sense of what it's actually like in practice. Um, you know, especially in Tel Aviv. There's there's people who probably don't even go to Jerusalem very often. You know, they feel like they're in a very nice bubble. And what I'd add also on Saturday night is that it also coincided with 
Purim, which is a big Israeli holiday. So, you know, everyone was dressed up in fancy dress. You know, the teen, like there was teenagers queuing for clubs. Um, you know, there was, you know, people drinking too much and throwing up on the side of the roads. You know, they kind of, they have this, you know, believe what the government has said uh, and kind of, you know, definitely to a certain extent, they feel distanced from the occupation, that it's not really their responsibility. And they kind of believe the Israeli lines about there being justifications. Yeah, it's so because so, that tallies with a lot of what we hear. But again, to Martin's point, it is it is disingenuous because it's like, you know, I, we see it all the time whereby people who've been talking in terms say in Irish terms, there was someone recently made a comment about trans people who um was then caught off off Mike talking about, you know, then and then uh, you know, same sex marriage. There's a hierarchy of of how this kind of thing flows and, and it goes from one to the other. And people are like, oh, you know, I'll I'll stand on this cause, but not on the other. But in terms of the the, the numbers, well, first of all, the government itself it is a power grab. It's it's incredible. They think that they want to. They're going to say, "Look, we we'll just give ourselves a simple majority," and it's not exactly a nice um, collection of individuals. There's some seriously strange, strange people who are uh, have said some very, very toxic things. And particularly, I will say, in terms of their, uh, you know, their opinions on Palestinians and, and the likes, is. Is there any sort of sense of embarrassment that this is the government now that uh, that 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 the people have actually been left with? You know, because we've gone through what I think I think it's three elections in six years now in 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 Israel. Like, well, I think it's worth mentioning though that, like, you know, even in the Supreme Court, there are settlers who serve on the Supreme Court. Um, there are ministers who live in settlements in Hebron. Um, Ben Gavir is from a settlement in, in Hebron, which is one of the most radical settlements where basically, you know, 650 um, Israeli settlers are living in the center of the second biggest Palestinian city in the West Bank. And as a result, the entire you know center of the city is a ghost town because it has been basically locked down. Palestinian markets were closed um, and because, you know, the military needed to provide security for settlers, which now includes two ministers. So you know, they control all of the institutions. They settlers serve in the um in the IDF. Um, you know, they they are in control, they're in power. And I think, you know, this is this isn't like a it's not a sudden it is the most extreme government, but like this is a trend that has been ongoing since the second intifada. So this is not something that necessarily um Israelis uh didn't see i think it's that they suddenly feel like particularly you know secular or Mm. you know more progressive israelis or people who view themselves as you know living in a democratic state and view that as important to their conception of the state they live in suddenly feel like this has gone too far it's i I do think it's strange has it gone too far is it just a progression a natural progression of where they were going anyway i think it's kind of where they were going anyway is okay time to jump on and say put on the brakes but it seems too little too late now at this stage well exactly because again the the point of the occupation of west bank is all centered around protecting settlements and we know that settlements you know have gone from 100,000 to 700 and 751,000 you know as of this year of it's people massive, living in isn't it it's a massive number um and you know like like that's you know, what is that? That's Limerick and Cork combined, is it? Yeah, 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 it is easily. You know, and I mean, there's like that's a complete absence of absence of political leadership. 
um, to have allowed that to happen and to kind of be setting up those problems for the future. So, I mean, someone this week I was talking to said, look, the Israeli government have, like previous governments had no real interest in delivering peace. No political party has run or could really run on a platform of a two-state solution. That's not where the electorate is. The last, the last person who tried it ended up getting shot by his by his own citizens. That's the yeah, truth. yeah, Gitzak Rabin. Yeah, but um, and interesting. Someone today, I was talking, or sorry, at the protest in Tel Aviv, I was talking to a professor who was at the gathering after his death, and he said the protests now are bigger than that, which is interesting. Um, but um, sorry, is, I've there, lost my train is, is there an alternative? Uh, power base for protesters to vote for is or is it everybody pretty much within the same lines and this is just a little bit of data dissatisfaction that they're expressing in that no matter what way the protest goes there's no alternative i i think this government feels untouchable and i mean i think any other you know democratically elected government would question you know continuing a policy decision if they for nine weeks ten weeks now People were on the streets en masse, you know, and with that big a cross section of society. But I mean, they've been enabled, you know, they don't, they haven't been abiding by international law. Um, They've been able to kind of unilaterally decide policy without really any kickback. I mean, there is often, I mean, usually when something became an issue in Israeli society, there was, you know, there was kind of small decisions made to make things more, seem more palatable. You know, every so often there is, you know, a progressive Israeli documentary maker or a journalist who will do a story that highlights something. And there's like a small change just for the optics. Like, I think, sorry, I think the Israeli, if I get, the Israeli Air Force objected to Smotrich, um, his statement that Huara should be wiped off the statement and they mm. refused to turn up to training. So he apologized to them, but not mm. to Palestinians. Just so, can we can, can we can we I accept everything you've just said and, and that, that the hope is that there's you know that there's like there is no real like like it seems to be no matter uh, how often they run this um these elections that the same kind of power base comes back and uh, and that they've been slowly and slowly but surely moving in this direction for it's been the direction of travel for more than more than a couple of decades and if we're if we're honest but we saw some extreme violence in the last little while like i mean there's been bloody scenes for years but like january was one of the was the worst start to a year in in the since the occupations as we as we know them began and um and then like you were you were in the west bank you've seen uh some of the attacks and some of the the actions now what what's this what's the sense on the ground in terms of the level of violence and the level of crackdown because it seems again i speak to people in the area and they they tell me that it, it's never been worse and you kind of go sometimes we always have this recency bias that we think it's never been worse well because i this is what i'm seeing but it it when you see these statistics, like six people, you see settlers going in with what seems to have been the uh, the tacit approval of the state to, to do barbaric acts in terms of burning out homes and stuff. It does seem to be a whole other level now. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think the latest figure is that more than one Palestinian has been killed every day since January 1st. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a constant debate about, you know, where is the violence going? Um, you know, what's the alternative? Um, a few people are saying, look, I, I mean, I, it's kind of this 
this already is something of an uprising. This already is something um, of a third intifada. It's hard to know how much worse it will get. A lot of people are very nervous about uh, Ramadan, which this year will um, coincide with Passover. Uh, so there's a lot of concern about the tensions and the frictions that could happen there, particularly when you have, you know, an extremist, you know, Israeli settler in charge of uh, security uh, and the police force and, and the army. Um, so people are very, very nervous. And at the same time, the Palestinian Authority um, is, you know, it's continuing to kind of cooperate with the Israeli government, but at the same time, lo- like the public feel that there's no benefit to it. Um, they um, they tear gassed uh, Palestinian Authority security forces, tear gassed the funeral of um, one of the Hamas militants um, in Janine uh, earlier this week. Um, so I think there's a there's a lot of anger and there's there's a lot of sense, you know, I think among a lot of local people where, you know, what is the alternative? Their government, the PA is not strong enough to kind of like have a bargaining position where they feel, look, you know, we've given this to Israel. We're going to get back, you know, increased ability, like movement, the ability to travel. We're going to get back the taxes that they're withholding. So I think people, you know, there's a point where there is not a ton of like, political hope coming from the Israeli government or the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and I think when people feel like they have no hope and there's no solution being offered, um, I think we're in quite a kind of tense position. Do you think there'll be a compromise, Hannah? I don't know what the compromise is in the sense like the Palestinians have compromised a lot, you know, in terms of... I, I mean, the, the Israeli government with the Israeli protesters, you think they'll do something that'll appease the situation? That, uh, as they usually do, Hannah, as you said yourself, in the past, they'd give a little just to get what they wanted. I think part of the... It's hard to know because part of the analysis is that Bibi Netanyahu wants to ensure that he will not go to prison for corruption charges. And in yep. order to confirm that, he, he has to be able to control the Supreme Court. And, you know, he's shown, consistently shown an ability to put his own career and to avoid self-sacrifice for his people to the point that he's now, you know, in government with, you know, people who were um, too extremist to serve in the Israeli military. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the context. And again, you know, these this is an extreme government that feels like, you know, they're allowed to unilaterally decide their policy. Uh, and again, if the public don't like it, what are they going to do? Yeah. Oh, well, we know that situation. We feel it to a lesser degree over here. To You know, we do certainly feel that kind of lesser, you know, when a government has a majority that you just can't shift them. I don't know how it's going to work out for Israeli people. I think um, the idea that the Palestinians are left out of the protest or that it's seen as something separate to the protest is just really something concerning. Uh, I just can't see them. Uh, I can't see any end point to it. I can't see any plus to it. But can I come in and just ask, because obviously, so listeners might be familiar, there's, there's actually a couple of things that Bibi Netanyahu is, 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 is said to be, uh, you know, there, there was some of it was kind of fairly well in the public domain in terms of media uh, manipulation and his uh, some of the things that he's done on that side. And then there's obviously the the other things going back. Some of it's going back to 2019. Some of it goes back even older, longer. And he's managed to uh, evade any sort of real accountability up to this point. And yeah, Hannah, I think that's a good point. But I just, I would worry 
that were to the point though about the Palestinian Authority that it, when I speak to people in Gaza and the West Bank, they're kind of the same mindset. And I don't know if you're feeling if you're getting that when you're now that you're there that people are saying, but we can't really trust on the PA at all either because they're very weak. They're you know they're they're, they're, they're and and now. Hamas, like a lot of the raids that have happened in, in Jenin that you're talking about is, is related to, so maybe Islam, Islamic Jihad or, or Hamas, they're saying, one fella said to me and um, that they, when they arrested 18 people, some of the people that were arrested, uh, the, the biggest thing they'd done was was wore a, 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 a Hamas coloured, also an Islamic Jihad coloured um, headband. You know, these were just teenagers kind of acting up and it just seems to be there's a lot of young people dying and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse this year yeah no absolutely and i think it's just worth reminding listeners that if you are under 35 in the west bank you have not voted in an election um the pa have not you know fata have not been willing to kind of you know transfer power um and i think people are pretty disillusioned they don't have buy-in from the public um, and again, you know, people people are facing pretty daily um, reminders of the occupation, checkpoints, um, all their ID cards are continuing to go to the Israeli authorities for sign off. Um, the PA has said they've stopped security cooperation with the Israelis um, after the first attack, like the first kind of major attack in Janine. But I, I think it's clear that it's, that's already returned quite quickly. So people kind of were like, what is the point? If we're going to cooperate, why are we not getting anything else in return? Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think there really is. And I mean, there's been corruption um, and they, you know, FATA have absolutely targeted opposition groups as well. Um, so, again, they're not necessarily showing leadership. So, I mean, it's it's a tough position well, if you're an average Palestinian in the West Bank is, today. It's, it's bleak for people on the ground, Hannah. It's bleak. What, what can I ask on to Martin's point? What's the kind of mood like? Because I know we talk about the economy suffering is in the Palestinian economy suffering, but it's, you know, it's spring now. There's pictures of people trying to start to start the, the farming process, start the, you know, the, these others. What's your sense of how the actual economy is doing? Are people are, are people struggling for basics it's, still? Well, it, it's the same as kind of everywhere kind of since the Ukraine war. There's been kind of, you know, inflation. Um, there's strikes across the professions in Palestine. So teachers, um, both with UNRWA and the Palestinian Authority, are on strike. Um, lawyers are on strike. Uh, engineers are on strike. Um, everyone's kind of looking um, for, you know, I think teachers were looking for a 15% increase, but they actually had only been paid 70% of their salary for the last year. Part of that's just a funding issue in terms of the PA. They they don't always manage their budget properly. And at the same time, uh, Israel has been withholding taxes uh, from um, Palestine, which it collects on its behalf because Palestine doesn't control its borders, um, which is also, you know, adding to the resentment, you know, people, their daily life uh, and the economic situation is hard. Salaries in the West Bank are much lower uh, than in Israel. Um, so it, it's just a very, very difficult, you know, work environment do you think the mood over there has gotten worse hannah i mean you're on the ground there's very few people myself and tony were discussing there's very few people covering the territory that you're covering very few um you know do you feel it on the ground do you feel a sense of despair do you think things are getting worse 
I was quite struck by the sense with which, you know, we were talking to people who kind of run, you know, more social outreach programs or charities. So, you know, we met with someone who, who runs a community center in East Jerusalem for Palestinians. And, you know, I just asked the question, you know, do you ever run any kind of programs with where like Israeli kids and Palestinian kids would play football? You know, the kind of programs that, you know, you see, see in Northern parts. Ireland now, yeah. you know, there's yeah. kind of, you know, they're kind of, you know, a normal kind of program to like, you know, even attempt to run and they were clear, absolutely not. And we don't want to. And I'm not going to say the quote that you want me to say, because I know you're all here and you want me to say that, but I'm not going to say it. I, I would not agree to that. And, you know, the people, like, they had their lines. They're like, this is not Hollywood. And they were very, very clear. Like, they, like as in, I, I, I mean, I was taken aback by how little... Again, you know, I, again, I have family in, in Northern Ireland, Belfast, and again, just the conversations you would have there, it, it's kind of backslided, I think, in, in a lot of Palestine. Like, that discussion is worse than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, so when we, we, we talk about it through the prism of sectarianism and we look at it in, in, with our fears in, in those areas. Um, Hannah, just one, one thing though, you, you, you referenced yourself on social media about, about meeting with, um, uh, Palestinian activist, uh, Issam uh, at his home in Hebron and then leaving because of a warning and then the house being attacked by settlers. This seems to be something, first of all, um, is this I'm okay? And second of all, uh, like, is this now something that is just par for the course that the settlers are, are, are seem empowered to, to do these things now? I think they've been empowered to do this for quite a while. And I think, I think it's genuinely at times hard to kind of really believe that that's what's happening when you have, you know, Israeli military on standby. Mm. So just again, for context in Hebron, it's the second biggest Palestinian, uh, second biggest Palestinian city in West Bank, and there are so that's about two hundred thousand people, and there is six hundred and fifty Israeli settlers who've taken over kind of homes in the center of the city, which means you know there's a huge security operation there. So normally there's basically one soldier for every settler, and during Purim when I was there, there was nine hundred soldiers. So that happened on a day when there was extra military. Around. So what happened was when we got in there, uh, a kind of young Palestinian boy had come up and he was kind of trying to sell us bracelets. Um, the economy is very bad in the kind of area of the city we were. Um, and kind of maybe two hours later, we were in the house uh, and we got a kind of warning from um, from our driver who was who said, look, that boy has been arrested. There's going to be protests. There's going to be tensions, religious holidays in in Israel and the West Bank are already kind of tense moments. Um, and, and this is the other thing, even like, <laughs> like, and I, and I say this story because it's almost, a, it's kind of bizarre story, but it's also kind of a horrifying story. So in Tel Aviv, people have been bringing up Huara, the violence that happened when 400 settlers descended on, um, the small town, um, in Nablus on the 26th of February. So in Tel Aviv, people have been, you know, going up to military and saying, you know, where were you in Huara? And um, when we were leaving Hebron, we were on kind of this Israeli-only road. Palestinians aren't allowed to walk on it. Uh, and settlers kind of drove by us, you know, stopped the car, rolled down the window. They were wearing like pink wigs for Purim. It was bizarre. And just kind of said, oh, where were you in Hawara? And kind of laughed and drove on. So this is after we left um, Issa Mamro's house, who is just a really... He, I'd, I'd urge people to kind of look at his work because he, he's both kind of strong against the Israeli forces, but also would 
would criticize the PA and, and has actually kind of suffered from that as well. Um, and he does a lot of kind of important community work in Hebron, where because of the scale of the security presence there, a lot of just normal community stuff can't happen. Um, you know, there's basically a road. It's like, you know, it's like if Grafton Street was suddenly, you know, only made for like people for blue eyes and, you know, brown eyed people couldn't go. Uh, and, you know, if you had brown eyes, you had to kind of, you know, take the M50 around the road just to get to the other side of Grafton Street. That's yeah. what they've done to Hebron. So he does a lot of like important community work outreach there. And even when I was there, actually, there was an Israeli documentary maker who again can vouch because I feel like, you know, when you talk about this, every time I put a tweet while I'm here, you know, there's always three people saying that's just not real. Yeah. So there's an Israeli documentary team that was there when they were attacked. You can actually see them. If people want to go onto my Twitter and look at that video, you can see two people with cameras and they're both Israelis, actually. Mm. So, you know, scary scary though because it's it's so common like i i i use that filter if you don't follow me i don't see it but every now and then i look at a tweet about something about happening in maybe um gaza and i realize i have 14 replies so sometimes you just you i foolishly click on it and i realize i'm being told no this is all nonsense and i'm going wow they really take their time to to go and 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 go at you like you know i i had dinner with an irish man um an Irish Jewish man who made Aliyah to Israel 40 years ago last night. And he just honestly didn't believe me. And when I talked about the settlers, he was like, they'll be moved. The The military will move them, which they don't. They won't. And their orders, are, their engagement orders are, they don't have authority to do that. And they're told to not, you know, intervene on that. Yeah, sometime never, Hannah. Sometime never. It's never going to happen. Hannah, again, I'll just echo what Tony said at the beginning. Mind yourself, you're one of very few people on the ground in these areas. And I'm doing it selfishly. We'd hate to lose you as a contact. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's love. Um, No, 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 I do mean it. Mind yourself. You you put yourself in these places. And they are dangerous places. They absolutely are. And journalists have been killed in the West Bank. Can I I ask that last question, actually? You you went, you did have dinner, you said, with some of the colleagues of the late great uh, Shereem Abu Akhlar, um recently, and it's nearly one year since she was murdered by the Israeli state, the IDF. Um, how was that, Hannah, if you don't mind me asking? Very, like, very moving and very kind of hard and kind of very, just very sad. Because um, she really was, you know, a big figure mm. within Palestine. Like, she, Like, when people talk about her, it's almost like this mix of, like, I don't know, like Anne Doyle and Charlie Bird and, you know, like these kind of beloved TV presenters who have so much trust. Like, you know, people really, you know, we were like, when she's telling the story, we believed her. And, you know, I talked to another journalist who went, like, she's like, I studied journalism because of Shireen, Um, especially like the Christian Palestinian community. They all would have known her um, because Shireen was from the Palestinian Christian community. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's really, really sad. I was there. We had, I think we had dinner with three of the journalists from Al Jazeera. And again, they all had to kind of, I, they were all reporting on the death of their colleague. Mm. Uh, and I think it's already incredibly mentally demanding work for Palestinian journalists. Like, I mean, I, I would read a lot of coverage of Palestine, but it's just different when you're here. Mm. Um, 
and just the scale of the daily incursions because of the occupation. I mean, it's like, it almost becomes redundant the amount of times you say it, but it is just mind-boggling to actually see it. Hmm. And I was talking to a diplomat um, uh, at another dinner this week who said, you know what, every every time you know there's heads of missions that always come out and they think they know about the israeli-palestinian conflict and there's always this moment where like the first three months they're just kind of continuously shocked because they thought they kind of knew and then it's just so much worse when you're actually on the ground and it's so hard to kind of believe that it's still this is still happening in plain sight with so much evidence but it is and they all go on this kind of you know journey and then by the end of it they're kind of like you know shouting for justice and then they move on to another posting and someone else comes on and, you know, goes through that same journey and, you know, it's just this kind of endless cycle of people saying, how is this still going on? Hannah, again, thanks for coming on, having this chat with us. As always, informative, as always, very, very good on the ground. And I think you have to be on the ground, as you said yourself, to fully understand the situation. And um, Thanks again. And uh, let's hope the next time we talk, there's a bit better news. Thanks, Martin. Couple of quick things just on on before we finish on that, I'll, I'll never forget the moment when um we were talking to Hannah Salah and Martin and you asked her how are you and we had ninety seconds of quiet before she just cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, because it takes it takes a toll as if you're a professional. You can be a professional, Tony, but you're still a human. Yes, and and then the second thing I will say on 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 the Shireen story is that you you mentioned uh, Issam Ad- Adwan, who he's he's been on this podcast a lot of times. He told me once about standing in front of a mirror with a hairbrush, pretending he was Shireen, like you know. So so she was a hero across uh, uh, all all of them. They all looked up to her. So so you know, it's it's a it's a very sad 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 story. Um, we do have uh, another podcast scheduled uh, today, uh, but it'll be it, it's for it's for another day. So this is really really important. Thank you so much to Hannah for get, finding the time, and uh, I'll I'll end with please do stay safe and please 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 mind yourself because uh, you know I I love I love having these conversations, but uh, I wouldn't go to places that you, that you do. That's the truth of it. Uh, make sure you follow Hannah's work on Twitter, on Instagram, and she you'll see her. I'm sure there'll be reports coming out across the media in the next little while. Have you have anything ready to go yet, Hannah? I think I'll have a few things out next week. Great. We'll we'll plug them as well. Thanks so much, folks, and we'll talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.